Well, good morning, Gitwell. It's good to be with you today as we continue into our uh, series in the letter of James. My name is Greg Meek. I'm pastor to Families and Next Gen here. And I'm really looking forward to as we explore uh, this chapter four that we're going to look at today. But before I begin, I feel like we need to uh, highlight something and pray for our world and more particularly the people of Israel and things that are going on in the Middle East. This past week that we have witnessed uh, some of the most horrific evil that was unleashed in that region uh, in quite some time. And each day through social media brings more stories of terror, murder, and persecution of God's chosen people, unlike any other time since Israel came back together as a nation in May of 1948. So I'd invite you, let's go to God in prayer. Father, I lift up the Jewish people in the nation of Israel to you in prayer. I pray for your grace and protection to overshadow them as a people and as a nation. Lord, they're your chosen people, the apple of your eye, and yet there is an increasing drumbeat from the nations of the world to drive them into the sea that the name of Israel be no more. Yet you have promised to make Israel a great nation so that they are as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars in the heavens. Guard and protect the nation of Israel. Give them wisdom to their leaders Guide them in their decisions that they have to make in an increasingly hostile world. Protect them, I pray, with your mighty arm and set a head of protection around their homes, their cities, their families, and their little ones. I pray that you would thwart the evil plans and practices of their enemies and prepare them for that terrible time of Jacob's trouble when Jerusalem becomes a burdensome stone for all nations and when the entire world turns upon the nation. Thank you, Father, that you know the end from the beginning. I pray that many would come to trust you as their Lord and Savior, so that as a nation they will call on the name of the Lord and return to the God of their salvation. Father, I pray for all of those in Israel who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior, and I pray that in your grace you would use them to be a true witness to both Jew and Palestinian of the love of God and of the forgiveness of salvation that only comes through his only begotten son, our savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and through the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. So as we continue in this letter to James, let's remind ourselves something, that this is a writing that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. James was the brother of Jesus. Now we are told by Paul that the resurrected Jesus appeared to James from there afterwards forward from his ascension and James was identified with the apostles in Galatians and Acts as well. And we know that James became a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. Now, what we have learned from the previous weeks, that this writing has two main concerns. One is the attitude of Christians in response to adversity and living with true wisdom from above, especially 
in the matter of speech and in wealth. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 4. And if you will look with me on the screen, we will read together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, right now, think about the question James poses, the first one the ver in this verse, for yourself, for us, for our lives. And why is it that we sometimes find ourselves angry, arguing in conflict with other people? We have to ask ourselves, what is the source of our anger? Why do we get upset? What causes conflicts between you and your spouse, between you and your other family members, or even between you and other believers in the church? Now, here are some typical answers to this question that we hear. It's the other person's fault. They are just so unreasonable. They're so selfish. And they simply just make me mad. A different way of answering that is, it's just the way I am. I have a short temper. And in our today's world, our world loves to, to go here that I suffer from mental illness. Sometimes we might say, it's due to the upbringing, my parents were too strict with me. I may have been abused when I was little or my parents weren't strict enough. They gave me free reign, everything came too easily for me and that's the way I am now. Maybe we do say it is due to our circumstances. I get upset because, well, I'm just so tired. It's been a long day, money is tight, or life is too stressful right now. Now what I want you to notice in all of these assumptions that we have, here's a common reply as to why we get upset and why we quarrel. The first one is, it's not my fault and I cannot do anything about it. And what I really need is for my circumstance to change and for other people to change. You see, this is the way our world thinks. So is there any wonder why there is so much conflict in the world today? So many angry words exchanged, so much violence, so much divorce, murder, so much war, I could go on and on. And according to the world's way of thinking, there is no real hope for peace or for lasting peace because none of us can really help ourselves. What about Christians, God's people, and God's children? Should we be making those same excuses? Now, the things I've just mentioned can and do play a role in producing conflict. 
Other people may actually indeed provoke us. Our flesh may actually be prone to anger. Our upbringing could possibly have been a poor influence on us. And in fact, we actually might be dealing with difficult circumstances right now. However, none of these, hear this, none of these according to God are the true source of our quarrels. So what is it? James, through the Holy Spirit, reveals in this passage what the true source, the nature and treatment is for our fights and our quarrels. This disease is not physical, mental, or psychological. It is a spiritual disease, one that we have done to ourselves, one in which we must carefully deal with so that it does not do more damage to ourselves or to others. Now, James wants us to understand that the true source of our quarrels is idolatry, idolatry. If you want to truly reveal and heal conflicts with one another, you must understand the source of where your conflicts come from. But it's not truly external, but internal. Quarrels come from the heart with idolatry. What is the source of quarrels among you? Is not the source of your passions that wage war in you, James asked? See, he knows that the basic source of every quarrel is basically the same. The source of all quarrel is the passions that are waging war within you. Notice how he uses military terms here. In the first question, we have conflicts and quarrels, but more literally, those are wars and battles or wars and fights. This military theme continues into the second question. There is something waging war within you. Now your passions are all the things that you really like and really want. There are things that you, you, you find delight in. So James is saying here that your wants and your desires are waging a war in your soul. They're seeking to dominate you and demand that you seek after them. Our fighting comes from the desire within our hearts, but we know this, it comes from our sin. Consider how this works in real life today. You've got something that you really want. You've got something you're really passionate about. Something that you feel is so essential to your happiness, wholeness, maybe even your security. Maybe it's something abstract like love and respect or comfort. Maybe it's something more concrete like money or a particular food or even sex. You are pursuing this thing and you are looking forward to it. Then someone gets in the way of you and your expected pleasure. You know you want to be loving toward this person, and you know the teaching of Christ. Meanwhile, that pleasure or that passion in your heart begins to assault you, and it demands you fight for it and punish those who are in your way. 
You become overtaken by your desire. You become angry. And here's what you essentially communicate to the other person. How dare you get in the way of me and what I want? How dare you threaten it? How dare you take it away from me? Don't you know that I need this and I deserve this? Now you're going to pay. Thus you quarrel. In reality, that is idolatry. Your passion now has become your God. And your worship that you desire is that passion instead of the true God. All sin, folks, at its root is idolatry. And this is true for our quarrels as well. In every quarrel, in every angry conflict, one side or the other is engaging in idolatry, and it's often both sides. One side has a certain desire, the other side has a competing desire, and both sides are not willing to let go of their desires. So for Christ's sake, they go to war. This is called passion for self-gratification. And we learn in verse Three, that that passion for self-gratification negates prayer. The problem many of James' readers faced is that they looked at them to themselves both for the source of their pleasure and the end of their pleasure. They should have looked to God. So he says they have not because they ask not. Their self-centeredness has negated their prayer life. Since they've made themselves the center of all actions, why do they even need God? And when, even when they did pray, their prayers were negated because they were designed to satisfy their own lust, their own wants. They asked and did not receive for what they asked for because they asked basically with evil intent to spend the proceeds of the sensually oriented prayer on their own pleasures. Now it is a fact that there are times when the worst thing that could happen to you is for God to give you what you ask for. Prayer should orient one to God's will so that one's request is pleasing in his sight. What one request of God should be God-honoring, other-blessing, and then it will truly be self-fulfilling. When we magnify the latter self-fulfillment to the disparagement of God's will, our desire for self-gratification becomes an immediate source of strife in our life. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, when we enter into a relationship with Christ, it is a new relationship. It is a special relationship, and it is described in terms as if we are actually wedded to Christ himself, in the sense that he is the bridegroom and we, the church, are the bride. We are indeed involved in this special relationship with Jesus. 
To be untrue to that relationship constitutes spiritual unfaithfulness. And in fact, that is a real kind of adultery. This is why James calls the readers uh, who became so self-centered that they worship the God of pleasure, adulteresses. He even uses the female version there since Christ is the bride. He references this uh, in, in other passages as well. This friendship with the world produced by a worldly mind and subsequent desire for pleasure constituted spiritual adultery and made guilty enemies of God. Because here's the deal, to declare one's allegiance to the world is to a declaration of enmity toward God. Enmity means hatred. It means hatred. James reasoned with them on the basis of understanding that they should have had. He's literally giving this letter to the church. When we enthrone the world and we dethrone God, we make ourselves God's enemy. This stance puts us in a spiritual condition, which is indeed abhorrent to God. Our yearning, folks, for the world is devastating because it tends to destroy our basic well-being and hurts others in the process. This is a large and constant threat for us, even in the church. The desire for self-gratification is one which will overcome and overwhelm the strongest Christian. So in verse 6, he shares a distinct promise that God gives more and more grace. One who is self-centered does not feel the need for God's grace. He's self-sufficient. One who is Christ-centered always recognizes the need of his constant grace and more and more grace. And the more you grow in Christ, the more grace you need to stay Christ-centered. We need to hear carefully that God's claim that he sets himself against the proud and the haughty, but he graciously gives Grace to the one who is humble-minded enough to receive it and be blessed by it and in turn be a blessing to others because of it. So what do we need to do to combat this self-gratification and this self-centeredness? Let's look at verses 7 and 10 through 10. Here we go. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt, exalt you, exalt you. You see, passion, folks, for self-gratification demands two things, repentance and submission. Repentance and submission. For one who has dethroned God and enthroned self for the sake of self-gratification, there are certain elements which 
must be involved for you to return to God. You must submit to God and take a stand with God. Here we go. This is the military terminology again, describing taking a stance of renewed obedience to God's will. Here's a positive commitment to God in total surrender. This element is kind of paralleled with its negative counterpart. You must stand against the devil. It is more than just resistance. It is a definite stand against the will of the devil who is actually the slanderer. In verses 11 and 12, we will see that the one who slanders his brother or sister is acting in the role of Satan, the devil, the slanderer. This decisive stance against the devil will result in his fleeing from you, even as he did after Jesus' own victory when tempted in the wilderness. James promises, promises victory over Satan in an environment in close relationship with God. So along with submission to God is the accompanying element of drawing closer to him. Hear this, church. This action is the decisive act of approaching God in fellowship and in worship. Our first move toward him will be met how? By his outstretched and open arms as he is indeed drawing us nearer to him. This is a renewed relationship where self-centeredness is dissolved and Christ-centeredness is established. In order to repent and submit, we have to feel the call to see the wretchedness the recognition of the heaviness of the affliction of sin that weighs down upon us. And this sense of wretchedness is to grow out of a deep sorrow for our sin. This is why James follows with another sharp imperative to mourn in deep grief and sorrow. It is the godly sorrow that Paul even describes in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10 which produces a salvation that is not to be regretted. This inward grief is to be expressed outwardly in shameless weeping, indicative of one's genuine dejection of the pitiful state of sin that we're all in. Emphasis is placed on this summons to repentance by concluding to let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Our literal downcast look is to reflect a downcast heart ready to turn to God for renewal. That is so contrary to what the world tells us. Let's go to verses 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? See, James here warns us 
also against strife resulting from gossip. The tragic source of strife is our own self-centeredness, slandering, backbiting our fellow people. It is indeed a form of self-exaltation to try to destroy your brother or your sister by speaking against him or her. And this action of critical judgment causes all kinds of contention. So James says in verse 11 to stop talking evil against one another. The Greek word here literally means to slander the person. When one does this, he is actually drawing nearer to Satan, the devil, not God. The very name of the devil used in 4-7 means the slanderer. And there's no, probably no greater cause of trouble in our churches today than this malicious, slanderous talk. And it stems from a selfish desire to elevate oneself up by tearing another down. Seeds of doubt and suspicion can be sown which sound very righteous, but ugly slander can do damage beyond repair. And many people walk away from the church because of it. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we should strive to help each other, encourage one another, build each other up, not to destroy one another. He also reminds us of this. Let's look at the next two verses. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, this is an appeal for us to humbly submit to God because our life, particularly in today's world, is so transient. We should turn to God who is not like a vanishing mist. Jesus is our rock-solid ever-present security as one draws nearer to him in a trusting relationship. James declares what we should say about planning our life's events. We should say that we will do certain things and we may plan certain things if the Lord wills. There's a clear recognition here that God is the one in control, and it's best to humbly submit to his will. It doesn't remove the decision-making part on our part as Christians, but it does remove the self-arrogance and restores a stance of walking with God in all of your life events. But I think it's, it's interesting that he ends chapter 4 with this one verse, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. You see, James is writing to a congregation. He's writing to a church, the people who knew the difference between right and wrong. They know, they knew, we know, that materialism drives a wedge between yourself and God. They knew that you should not be guilty of strife, 
of gossip, of self-determinism. So he strongly declares that to know what is right and not to be doing it is outright sin. And here's the deal. Sin is not only an overt act of missing the mark or doing a wrong thing. Sin is also choosing not to do what is part of a Christian's responsibility. The sins of omission are abhorrent to God and just as damning as the sins of commission. Basic to this knowledge about what was right action is acknowledgement to God once again. In all matters of Christian conduct and attitude, one should act to honor God, bless others, and fulfill God's will for his own life. So that's a lot in chapter four. How do we sum this up? Passion for self-gratification demands humility, repentance, and submission. Only when we do a self-examination and see our true source of our fallen self can we then identify the idolatry, take it to the one true authority who can redeem it, Jesus repent of our sins and completely submit to his will, then and only then can we find this true solution for the problems that James addresses in this chapter. So church, I ask you today, will you willingly obey the word of God? Will you listen to how God is speaking to you from James? If you are a Christian, will you confess your angry conflicts and understand that they are indeed a result of idolatry? Will you unmask and cast away the idols of your heart? Will you patiently and in love help one another get to the root of your conflicts, exposing these idolatrous pleasures and passions each one of us so blindly often and foolishly choose and cherish? Will you acknowledge just how deeply you've betrayed and offended God? Will you be grieved enough over your sin to thoroughly seek reconciliation with others, trusting that if you humble yourself before God, then before men, he will exalt you in the end? Church, let's don't put this off. Give up your old thoughts, your old ways, and believe the good news about Jesus. God sent his son to take on human flesh to live a perfect life die an innocent death, suffer God's punishment and your punishment for your sin on the cross for, and for all those who believe in Jesus to rise again. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will never suffer God's judgment, but will instead see God's face forever and enjoy God forever. As the worship team comes up, the prayer rails are open, and I invite you to come and
get right with God. Leave whatever is bothering you here. So let's pray. Father God, what a chapter to hit us square in the face that we know that it ultimately at the root of everything in our life is idolatry and sin. We cause conflict, we cause arguments, we cause dissensions, we cause strife because we want our own way. We want our own self-gratification and in doing so we lift ourselves above you. We come before you now, Holy Spirit, and repent we turn from those wicked ways. We ask for forgiveness. We ask that you create in us a clean heart, renew our spirit, make us one with you. Keep us humble. Help us to live day by day in faith. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.